listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. In your pew Bible, it's page 823, 823. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, uh, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here ends the morning reading. Thanks, Martha. Good morning again, everyone. It's really good to be back with you all this week. Um, I was on retreat last Sunday. I went down to the Abbey of the Genesee for a week-long silent retreat. Has anyone here ever been to the Abbey of the Genesee? It's in Pifford, New York, about 40 minutes from here. Oh, man, you've got to get there. Um, It's a really awesome place. It's a Catholic monastery, only about 40 minutes away. Uh, The monks make the most amazing bread. Uh, They've got this little gift shop where you can get the bread. Uh, They have a chapel there. If you go at certain times, I think like noon and 3 o'clock, you can actually go into the chapel and listen to the monks uh, sing and pray and chant the psalms, which is really cool. So I'd highly recommend you to check that out. Um, it's also a really good place if you're just looking to get away for a weekend or, or maybe even longer to have some alone time with God. Um, they don't have Wi-Fi, which drove me up the walls for the first day or two. But that's, that's probably the point, right? That's probably, that's, probably, that's, that's probably the point with a retreat and a monastery. Um, but uh, I highly recommend it, and it's good to be back. Um, I want to give special thanks to Kevin Tate, who filled the pulpit while I was gone last week. He did a great job preaching. If you weren't here, if you missed that, uh, definitely go on our website and check out the recording uh, to hear what you missed. We are now officially in the season of Lent. And for the next six weeks, um, as we journey through Lent together, the cross is really going to be central in our time of worship, if you couldn't tell. A little, little on the nose, maybe. Um, But Lent is the season of uh, prayer and reflection and preparation leading up to Holy Week and Easter when we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. And our teaching series for Lent is called Metaphors 
for the cross. The question that is going to drive this series, that's going to be at the forefront over these next six weeks, is why did Jesus have to die? Why is the cross necessary? Why did God require such a terrible act of violence in order to free us from sin and death? Why did Jesus have to die? If you sit with it for a moment, it's a troubling question. It's an unsettling question. For one, it's a question that puts our sin at the forefront, but it's also troubling because it raises some questions about God. What kind of a God would require the death of an innocent man in order to forgive the sins of the world? What kind of a father would subject his own son to the treatment Jesus receives on the cross only to turn his back on him when he cries out for help? In addition to like uncomfortable questions like these, there's also just the question of mechanics, right? Like, how does it work exactly? How does Jesus' death actually save us? If the problem is sin and our connection with God being severed, then how does one man's death make up for that? These are questions the church has wrestled with for centuries, and um, it's the question of atonement. Um, How does the death of Jesus atone for our sins? Throughout the history of the church, various church leaders and thinkers have put forward a number of different metaphors to help address and try to answer some of these questions. The most common metaphor for the cross that we hear today and that we use today is one of punishment. The fancy, like, theological term for this theory, or this uh, metaphor, is penal substitutionary atonement. You don't have to remember that. Uh, There's not going to be a quiz at the end of this. But I share this title because it's very on the nose, and it says exactly what this metaphor is getting at. The idea with penal substitutionary atonement, the punishment metaphor for the cross, is that the cross is, number one, penal. It's a a punishment. And it's also substitutionary. Jesus is the substitute who takes the punishment we deserve in order to atone for our sins and make us right with God. Who here has heard a version of that before? Probably a lot of us, yeah. This is really the most common way that we talk about the cross today. If you've ever read like a gospel tract, if anyone's ever like kind of come up and tried to convert you, handed you a tract, this is almost exactly how the cross is portrayed. And there's some real value to this particular metaphor for the cross. It is grounded in scripture. When the Bible uses substitutionary language for the cross, it's usually more in a sacrificial setting. So think less like a courtroom and more like a temple, if that makes sense. But the the outlines of this metaphor are certainly there in the New Testament. The first person who really put it like this, though, the person who kind of took the sacrificial language in the Bible and put it in like a a law court setting was St. Anselm. Anselm was a Catholic monk who lived in the 11th century. That's the 10 hundreds A.D. And that's when this particular way of viewing and talking about the cross really came into the fore. Which, if you do the math, means that there's about a millennium's worth of other metaphors, older metaphors, that Christians used for centuries to talk about the church, uh, the cross. And a lot of those metaphors are going to be kind of the core and where our series begins when we talk about the cross. Over the next six weeks, I want to go back in time together. 
I want to resurrect some of these incredibly ancient ways of understanding the cross, not to like disprove or push back on, on the popular view that we all know and were given at some point, but really to flesh it out, to round out our view of the cross and supplement how we understand Jesus' death. Does that sound like a plan? Yes, awesome, very good. Now, um, the metaphor we're going to talk about today is Jesus the ransom, but before we get to that, there are three quick things I want to run through just so we're on the same page when it comes to these metaphors. Three things that I think it's important to know about all the metaphors we're going to talk about in the next six weeks. First thing to know about these metaphors is they're metaphorical. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> oh, seriously, though, it, it's important to start out by understanding the nature of metaphors. Um, we just went through a whole series on the book of Psalms, right? So like for, for almost two months, we've been looking at poetry and metaphor. Um, we should be pretty well boned up on that now. And yet as modern people, as children of the Enlightenment, we do not do well with metaphor. We uh, prefer our very rigid, kind of literal, fixed territories. We want the truth, not a picture of the truth. Science has convinced us that there is no question we can't answer if we think about it and look hard enough. The problem is that is not how the people who wrote the Bible thought about the world. That's not how Christians for the first 1,500 years of church history thought about the world. They understood the value of metaphors. They understood there are some truths, some realities that are just beyond us. There's some questions that we will never know the answer to. All those like uncomfortable, problematic questions I mentioned at the outset um, about why Jesus had to die, those are still going to be open for discussion at the end of this series. We're not going to solve all that in six weeks, unfortunately. But the metaphors help. They won't give us all the answers because that's not how metaphors work, but they will give us a fuller picture of the divine mysteries behind the cross. So that's the first thing about these metaphors. They're metaphorical. Thing number two is that these metaphors are theological. This is going to be a theology-heavy series, which, like, gets me really excited. I know it scares the crap out of some of you. <laughs> um, but the point I really want to make when I talk about this, these metaphors being theological is that they're human constructions. These are theological ideas that were put forward by human beings to help us better understand the cross. None of these metaphors come straight out of the Bible. They all have biblical roots. Some of them have stronger biblical roots than others, and we'll talk about that along the way for sure. But these are all theological constructions made by leaders in the church who wanted to help people like us better understand the mysteries of the cross. So that's thing number two, theological. The third thing to know, third and final thing to know about these metaphors is that we need all the metaphors we can get. The more, the merrier. Uh, my goal in this series is not to find the right metaphor and discount all the others because, again, that's not how metaphor works. Um, but these metaphors, they play off of each other and respond to each other. There's like a push and pull with some of these. Where one metaphor is weak, another picks up the slack. Even in instances where these metaphors like play against each other or outright seem to disagree, 
We should understand those differences more as complementary than contradictory, if that makes sense. Like, imagine if we had six different artists paint a portrait of you. Those six pictures would probably look a bit different. Uh, one might be photorealistic, while another is more abstract. One might use watercolors, while another uses colored pencils. They might not look the same at all, but the inspiration behind them is the same, and that's the point. We're not trying to find the right metaphor for the cross. I want to take them all in and try to get a fuller picture of the God behind it all. Does that sound like a plan for the next six weeks? Excellent. Very good. So with that out of the way, let's talk about our first metaphor, Jesus the Ransom. This is a weird one. I'm <laughs> just like full disclosure. Jesus as a ransom is a is a it's kind of a cool metaphor. This is this is one of the oldest atonement theories we have. It comes from the early early church. We're talking like second or third century here. And the idea of Jesus as a ransom picks up on uh, language and themes found in passages like First Timothy two verses five and six. For there is one God. There is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all. You see the key word there, ransom. Find a similar example in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways you inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb without defect or blemish. When we look at all the ways the different New Testament authors talk about the cross, one of the most frequent words they use is ransom. We even find this language coming from Jesus himself in our scripture reading for today. In Mark 10, when the disciples are jockeying for position, James and John are riling everybody up, talking about who's going to be at the right hand of Jesus when he comes into his glory, Jesus shuts it all down and declares that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The idea of the ransom metaphor is that Jesus is the ransom paid by God to Satan so that Satan will release human beings from his grip. That's the ransom metaphor like an elevator pitch version. You basically find this widespread view in the early church, and it was common in many corners of first century Judaism as well, that the devil was basically holding humanity hostage. Since the fall of Adam, humanity has been trapped in the snares of sin and death. Throughout the Bible, we see Satan depicted as, as, a, as an adversary, a sort of tormentor of humankind. We see this in the book of Job big time. We see it in Jesus' ministry when he's casting out demons and when he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul even calls Satan the god of this world. The idea with this metaphor is that humanity is being held hostage by the devil, the master deceiver, the father of lies. And so to remedy that, God makes a deal with the devil. You let humanity go, and I'll give you my son. I'll hand my son over to the powers of sin and death. You can even take his life. Just release your grip on the rest of humanity. And the devil accepts the offer. 
but he didn't read the fine print. Because you know the story. Most of you, hopefully, know the story. Jesus dies on Good Friday on the cross. The devil releases his grip on humanity. But then something happens on Easter Sunday. It turns out that death cannot hold Jesus. He rises from the dead, beating the powers of sin and death once and for all, and leaving the devil with nothing. So in the ransom metaphor, God essentially tricks Satan, which is kind of hilarious, right? The master deceiver gets deceived. Do you see the twisted, sweet irony there? It's, it's a pretty cool metaphor. Now, to a lot of us, this sounds ridiculous, right? I can see in people's faces. You're like, really? Because this is not, this is not how we think about the world anymore, right? Um, in our kind of secular setting, we've lost our imagination for, like, the spiritual powers at play in the world. But make no mistake about it, this is how Christians talked about the cross for centuries. Uh, one of the earliest intellectual leaders in the church was Origen of Alexandria. He lived from about 185 AD to 254 AD, so we are going way, way back. Uh, Origen is kind of widely viewed as one of the first true Christian theologians, so I'm a fan. Um, but he gives commentary about this verse, about Jesus offering his life as a ransom for many. And here's what Origen, by the way, he probably didn't look like that. This is just a Artist rendering, obviously. Um, but here's what Origen has to say about that line of Jesus offering his life as a ransom. To whom will this ransom be paid? Could it not be the evil one? For he had us in his power until the ransom for us should be given. The evil one had been deceived and led to suppose that he was capable of mastering the soul and did not see that to hold Christ involved a trial of strength greater than he could successfully undertake. Don't you just love that? Like, does anyone, that just like brings a smile to my face. I love this. Um, another early Christian thinker uh, is Ambrose of Milan. Now we're talking late 4th century, so the late 300s. He called the cross a pious fraud, playing on the whole deception metaphor where God tricks the devil. Uh, in the 5th century, you've got Augustine of Hippo. He compared the cross to a mousetrap that was set for the devil and baited with the blood of Christ. There is an image for you. All right. And even Martin Luther, okay, famous German reformer from the early 1500s, he called the cross a fish hook that God uses to reel in the devil with Jesus as the bait. How many people here have ever um, either read the book or seen the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Wow, that's actually a good number of us. A lot of you have seen this. If you haven't, um, you should definitely check out the movie. It came out like 10 years ago. It's, it's pretty good. It's a good Lent watch. Um, the book was written by C.S. Lewis. It's actually a children's story, um, but it's basically an analogy for the gospel, and it centers on this ransom metaphor. Um, the villain is the white witch. I think is what they call her. It's this lady right here with the bears. Um, she's like the devil character of the story, and she tricks one of the little kids, Edmund. He's like the miserable-looking one with the dark hair uh, right there. She tricks him into selling out the good guys in exchange for some candy, you know, like you do when you're a kid. Uh, and so then Edmund is labeled a traitor, which means that his life belongs to the witch. But then the lion, Aslan, who's like the, the Jesus character of the story, he makes a deal with the witch where he offers his life 
in place of Edmonds. And if you've read the book or seen the movie, you know what happens. For the rest of you, I'm going to ruin it. Um, the witch kills the lion. She sacrifices him on the stone table. The lion then raises from the dead and defeats the witch. That's the ransom metaphor in a Disney film, basically. Now, there's a whole lot about this metaphor that we can critique. It's a very ancient way of looking at the cross. Um, it gives Satan a whole lot of power, almost presents the devil as a sort of rival deity to God, which is a problem. But this metaphor also offers a very different perspective on the cross, and it gives us a different vantage point from answering some of those really problematic questions from the outset. Throughout the New Testament, we find Jesus spoken of as a ransom, as we saw, and at multiple points, Paul talks about Jesus paying our penalty. But the ransom, theory, the ransom metaphor, ransom theory, raises the question, to whom was that penalty paid? With like the legal punishment metaphor for the cross that a lot of us grew up on, the assumption is that the penalty is paid to God, right? Like God essentially becomes the problem, sort of, in salvation. God is the aggrieved party who requires death before God will forgive the sins of the world. Some Christian leaders through the ages have even taken that idea and argued that Jesus saves us from God, which is an idea that might keep you up at night. But the ransom metaphor has a different perspective. With ransom, the penalty isn't paid to God. It's paid by God. God is not the problem. Sin and death and with the cross, God operates not out of rage or malice or vengeance, but out of love. Handing over his own son to the forces that have enslaved the world so that we will be set free. And Jesus in this metaphor is no longer the helpless victim. With the ransom metaphor, he's more like a secret agent. God's operative, who is partnering with God in this cosmic scheme to deceive the devil and save the world. See, if you grew up in the church, a lot of us, I know I speak for myself here, a lot of us have been given a view of salvation that is inherently transactional. It's like you are guilty of a debt that you cannot pay, but don't worry about that. Jesus paid it, so here's what you need to do to receive it. It's, all, it's like a banking metaphor, very transactional. The problem with a transactional view of the cross is that the question always becomes, what do I have to do? What do I have to do in order to be saved? How do I earn it? How do I get God off my back? And different churches will tell you different things. They'll give you different answers to that question. Say the right prayers have enough faith, do enough good deeds, every single one of those answers is inherently transactional. You want this from God, you need to give that. There's no grace there. But with the ransom metaphor, the cross is not a banking transaction. It's a rescue mission. God sends Jesus into the world to rescue us from the forces that have enslaved us. And Jesus completes that mission on the cross. 
offering us the free gift of salvation through grace. So let's bring this home and make it personal. What is enslaving you? What forces are getting between you and God? What devils do you have on your back? It could be addiction. It could be shame. It could be some hidden sin, some belief that um, you're just not good enough, that God would never love someone like you. That's the devil talking. The truth is, God loves you so much that God executed a cosmic rescue mission. God sent Jesus, his son, into the world to overcome the very forces that are enslaving us all. The demons you're wrestling with, whatever they are, they've already been defeated here. Don't let them fool you any longer. Trust God. Listen to God. Follow God. Accept that free gift of grace, whether it leads you into recovery or to take a week-long retreat at a monastery or maybe to take that first leap of faith and trust in Jesus for the very first time. Whatever it is, whatever penalty you feel you owe, Trust that God has already paid it. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of metaphors. Thank you for the wisdom of Christians who lived over a thousand years ago. Thank you, Lord, for the season of Lent, which leads us to reflect on the big questions at the heart of our faith and our lives. And God, most of all, thank you for sending us your son as the ransom for us and for paying our penalty. Help us to trust you and to trust in that sacrifice. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.